Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> ben, great to see you. How are you? Thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here, Al. Looking forward to a fun conversation and uh, it's going to be a blast. Yes, it is because we... I've been following you for a number of years and I've been a longtime fan and we finally got a chance to work together. And unsurprisingly, we had hands waving and you know, I was really enthralled, not only with your research, but the ideas that you had on to take appropriate action on the research. And so if you would introduce yourself and a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. Sure, absolutely. So, hey, everybody, looking forward to, again, this conversation. I am Ben Eubanks, the Chief Research Officer for Lighthouse Research and Advisory. Um, I do a couple different things. We do research on the HR technology market, right? So the tools, the, the systems, the software that employers are using to attract and develop and retain their people, but also research, as you'll see in the conversation a little bit, on what's happening in the space. So data on candidates, data on the workforce, data on how we as employers are making decisions about what tools we're going to be, be using, what practices we're going to be using to try to solve some of the challenges that are out there. So I've written a book on artificial intelligence applications for HR, which sounds like the most dry topic possible, but it's really a book about making work more human through the use of technology. And that's a big focus of the work that I do day to day. So um, one last fun fact is I started my career as a practitioner. So worked in the trenches, as an HR leader, ran a team, managed the function. So I know all the, you know, the pressure points and the, the stresses, I'm like whew, fan of myself thinking about some of those memories, but so I've been there, done that and now have the chance to support and encourage those in the community. They're still doing that day to day. Well, yeah, again, your perspective is something that I've, grown to value immensely for reasons that you just cited. And the topic today around candidate desires in particular. Now, we spent the last couple years and even from a broader perspective, the last 10 years where workers have had significant power, particularly young, high value talent. They were like, hey, if I don't get treated right, you know, I can bail. And their organizations now who have been recruiting in, shall we say, in a legacy way. And mm -hmm. so when we have people who are high value talent and they're not treated well as employees, yes, they can bail, but as candidates as well. Yeah. If they're not having a positive process during that stage of the courtship, if you will, then, you know, they might not be attracted to a certain employer. So if you would, can you talk about, you know, this notion of candidate desires and what attracts them and benefits them and what alienates them? Sure, absolutely. So we just finished a study recently, released the results, and these are, these are publicly available so anyone can get them on our website. But some of the big findings on the candidate side, we ask them about their biggest priorities when it comes to the hiring process, what matters most to them, things like employers being very transparent on the pay, being open about what those that pay is. And there's some fun things that I learned about that that I had wrong, actually, I could tell you in a minute, remind me to circle back on that one. They want to know that, right? They want transparency about future opportunities at the company. They don't want to be stuck in a job that's dead end, that there's a perception that I'll be doing this until the day I die. No, they want to know that you have a plan for them as an employer beyond this thing you're sorting them into. Um, one of the other things we see that's really actually really surprised me to see how strongly this response was in the data, but candidates prefer a screening process that allows them to put their best foot forward, that allows them to go through, whether it's an assessment or something else, where they say, I want the employer to see who I am, what I stand for, what I'm all about, and judge me based on that, not based on a resume or based on a, you know, a 30 second tell me about yourself, you know, sort of recorded video, but 
to give them a real chance to step forward and do that. In the data, we see the diverse candidates appreciate that more than anyone else because unfortunately they're often judged based on other things that they can't control. So this gives them a chance to really say, judge me based on my best. And so we see some really interesting things in there about how how candidates are, are changing things. There's a lot of interesting comments on ghosting, what drives that in the data. But those are the things that are most important to candidates when it comes down to hiring process. And if you as an employer are not thinking about some of those kinds of things and how to address those, then you're going to be the one that, that looks like uh, you're going to be the one that's kind of outside the bubble when those candidates start making decisions, because more than ever, they're juggling multiple offers at the same time. Yeah, I, I'm smiling in the way that I do because I, I love what you're saying so much because there's so much discussion around fit uh, mm -hmm. in a job. And the fit historically has been around skills. It's been which and increasingly and appropriately so. Um, however, we talk about what someone wants, what's their intention, what's going to uh, drive them ongoing. I remember years ago reading Good to Great by Jim Collins, and this is 20 years ago. And like on page 13 or 14, he says, your job, our job, if you're spending time and money and energy on trying to engage employees, you're wasting your time, money and energy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, the job is really to get people who are motivated and do your job your best, piss them off. And so, you know, that doesn't say anything about skills. It says, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, the idea that someone can show up in the interview process and be authentic and not put up these airs that, you know, just to be liked. So there's a responsibility, arguably, for, for the individual to know themselves, know how to communicate their desires, not only their skills, but their desires, what will uh, help keep them motivated in, in a job. So what I love that you're saying, and by the way, if People who are listening and viewing have questions or comments. Please uh, put them in the chat and we'll address mm -hmm. them to the sure. extent that we can. Uh, but here's my pointed question coming back around. Do you believe, based on the research or your own opinion, that organizations are creating uh, assessment processes that enable people, uh, candidates, that is, to put forth their authentic selves? Or is it not that safe of a place? Is that not happening yet? That's a really insightful question. I'll tell you that we see overall that more employers are looking to use assessments as another layer of insight into people. There's this interesting sort of pendulum swing a few years ago where it says, hey, we can do these automated video things. So we don't have to talk to people and it'll just pick the person for us. Great. And then we found out those weren't always what they cracked up to be, right? What they were, we were hoping for them to be. And so we saw this pendulum swing back where employers said, okay, we may do those. We're going to do those in tandem with some sort of assessment that gives us another layer of insight into who Al is, what he's about, what his strengths might be, whether you know them or not, what your strengths are and who, you know, what your, your traits are, all that kind of stuff. So we're seeing more employers looking at using those types of tools to help them do that. And it's funny because I'm actually doing a session tomorrow talking about some of the ways that candidates look at that screening process, some of the ways that they feel about that, because one of the the number one reason employers told us in the data that they're not using assessments is, well, we don't want to slow down the process. We don't want to slow, slow it down because we don't want our candidates to bail on us. And I completely understand that. But that's a very legacy mindset. A long time ago, I remember having our candidates you know, go through this process and, OK, we're going to get you to meet up with an IO psych and you're going to do a you know, multiple choice questionnaire and they're going to interpret it for us. And Oh, goodness. Right. Those, that was how we had to do it for a long time. The tools now are increasingly embedded into the process. So it's not this, okay, let's stop everything and then put you over here and bring you back. It's, we're just going to keep you moving right along. 
as seamlessly as possible. And we see in the data that candidates, again, appreciate that because they feel like they get to be judged based on who they really are and what they're about, not just based on their name, the school they went to, all these other kind of things that are completely irrelevant. There's zero data that say, oh, that predicts job performance, right? There's nothing there. Yeah. And yet we default back to that because it's a it's a human human brain sort of thing. It's hardwired. We're hardwired to look for that thing that's comfortable or familiar and say, okay, well, I've seen that before. So maybe, maybe that means good things, even if it doesn't necessarily. So there's a lot of focus on those kind of things. One other thing I'll tell you that feels kind of strange again, because we see this this really heavy emphasis on candidates are, are ghosting employers are disappearing from the process or feel like they're very transitory. At the same time, we see candidates much prefer an assessment and a screening experience that does just evaluate them for the job that they're going for, those skills, as you mentioned a minute ago, but also their future potential. What mm. else do you see me being good at? And how else are you going to help me to step into that, develop into that, prepare for that um, at some point in the future. So they're really thinking about those aspects, not just the immediacy, which feels strange. Like it's like a, they're at, at odds with each other because we feel like the candidates are just making a decision based on who's going to offer me the most money. And that, that matters, but not as much as we might think. But there's this other factor where they're saying, yeah, we want you to commit longer term to us and help me think about what's next so I can make a more accurate decision for all these different you know, things that are floating around, different factors they're trying to consider as part of that application process. That's uh, that's hugely uh, insightful, and I think it's critically important because downstream, when someone becomes an employee, you know, what does their anxiety derive from? If whether it be you know low disengagement, oftentimes it's lack of career opportunities, it's lack of confidence in the direction of the company, and that relates to employability, whether it be within the organization or outside the organization, you know, am I going to be secure and stable financially and, and otherwise? So now that's, that's fantastic. Now it invites the question, how the heck, you know, do you do this? How do you create that systematic process? How do you coach hiring managers and others to ask right question, create the safe place so they can create a picture and actually deliver on that vision for developing people? You know, what are your thoughts there for the systematic approach? Oh, goodness. So, by the way, you have a fan in George. You know, I know George Rogers. He's my, he's, uh, he's, uh, goodness. I love George. Okay. So, um, I'll tell you that when it comes to the development piece of that, so much of what I talk to HR and talent leaders and business leaders about isn't necessarily all about what we have to do as, as that community to do things. It's usually how do we get our hiring managers, how do we get our people leaders engaged in whatever we're trying to accomplish? Because we don't, own all the budget. We can't make all the decisions. We don't have unlimited time to do these things. And so how do we get them on board with us to help make these changes? And this is an example of that, that career development piece of it. So eight out of 10 candidates told us that's, that's pretty, pretty significant when it comes to, to a, a data set, eight out of 10 said, we want to know about career opportunities beyond this job we're taking or we're considering taking at least. And when it comes down to that, so many of them, and I, I know this has happened to me, and I've seen this happen. So probably those of you listening are going to say, oh, yeah, that's familiar. We get that manager that says, oh, yeah, we'll talk about that next step at your first review. And then you can never you, you lose the leverage once you say yes to that job and you can never force that conversation to happen. And for some of those managers who are too busy, too overworked or just not not interested, they won't come back to that and won't make that a, won't make that a reality. 
So candidates want to feel like I'm making a decision and I have some early commitment from that manager that this thing's actually going to happen, not just that it's a future, we'll talk about it, we'll get to that eventually. No, they want some more commitment, some more tangible thing now. So having those managers on board with that, helping them to have those conversations is important. And I think that might have been your exact question was, like, how do we do that? Because it's a great idea, but how do we actually implement? So a big part of it is making managers comfortable with having conversations about that helping them to feel like, okay, here's two or three key points about how we select people for the next role or how we hire internally. Just give them a little bit of insight into how you do that within your organization. Because once they have those things, they feel more comfortable. They feel more confident in being able to support that discussion with someone. I remember many times I had our head of engineering would, someone asked him a question about careers and he would the panic look and he would say, hey, go talk to HR about that. And I'd have gently bring them back to his office and we'd sit down together and we talk it through. And it just came to me of saying, Hey, tell them, tell them about what happened last time. Tell them about this person, how did you help make that decision? And just helping them to feel like they are still in charge of that because managers sometimes are a little hesitant about it. And I've seen this in a dozen different areas in the last couple of years, for example, pay transparency. Like people don't want to know all the pay of everybody. They just want to know how their pay is figured out and what it takes for them to level up in their pay. And so enabling managers to have those conversations is a big part of what I talk about in terms of that. So it's lots of different examples within the workplace, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a great idea for the CEO to say that we believe in that. But when it comes down to that level of that manager who makes the decisions, that's who we've got to really enable and co-opt and bring them along as we're figuring out how to actually solve for this because they either make or break a lot of the things that we decide from a policy perspective. Yeah, I... So, I mean, there's a bunch of directions that we can take this conversation and I know we have limited time and, you know, this is a topic that will never go away. <laughs> so, you know, it's going to be uh, an evolution certainly. And, but those who get it more right than others are going to be at a distinct competitive advantage. And so there's a, a, an impetus to do that. Uh, to step back, there's a, you know, macro influencers that are happening right now. And arguably, uh, employers are gaining more leverage in some job families. Um, however, this is the, the, the crux of, of what I'm getting at. If candidates have multiple offers or are in the, being considered by multiple employers, uh, you mentioned ghosting you know, earlier. Mm -hmm. um, why does ghosting happen, number one? And on the other side, the selection process is an influencer on the employment brand or the employer brand, I mean, or just the brand period. If, in other words, if they're alienated, if something doesn't go right, they're going to get, you know, a candidate is going to get pissed off. They're not going to speak highly of that brand either as a potential employer or as a consumer product or whatever service that they or product that they might provide. So my question pointedly is this, is from both perspectives, why do candidates ghost based on mm -hmm. your research and thoughts? And from the other side, the employer perspective, the risk of not having a tight process that maintains or even enhances the brand. Mm, goodness. I think those are definitely linked. So great, great set of tandem questions there. And we could probably spend an hour just going into those things, but I'll give you a couple of the highlights on the ghosting front. So every employer I talked to for a long time, it was, you would expect that for you know, some types of hourly work, things like that. And increasing we're seeing it in quote unquote professional jobs, right? More more corporate type jobs where you have someone who's a, a, a controller, right? At a hospital that just d disappears in the process. So things like that where you would not expect that to happen nearly as often. 
the number one reason candidates are ghosting employers based on the data that we have is once they learn more about the job or the company, it's just doesn't interest in them anymore. And instead of just saying, Hey, thanks Al for your time, but you know, not what I thought it was, they just disappear. Right. Increasingly, that's becoming more socially acceptable. What's interesting to me, though, is the top three reasons that people are ghosting employers are all within a couple of percentage points of each other. I really hoped, honestly, I really hoped there'd be one standout reason. And I could just point at all the fingers or all the employers and kind of wag my finger and say, hey, just do this thing right. Fix this and we're good to go. But unfortunately, there's a couple different mixed factors. So that was number one. One of the other top ones was I've um, goodness gracious. One of the other top reasons was the uh, I'm blanking on this completely right now. Goodness. The job, the <laughs> hiring process took too long, right? The hiring process took too long. And number three was I took another offer. Okay. So two, the two and three on that list are all related to speed. How quickly mm. we're turning this around back to your assessment question earlier, right? Do we take mm. this detour off the path and risk losing someone, right? If it's not much of a detour and if it feels like it's more valuable to them, Absolutely. So I'll take, I'll tie these things all together for you. So I had a chance recently to interview one of the heads of hiring at Delta Airlines. And one of the things they told me was they look at their candidate data, where they come from, and a significant number of them come over from the, the actual consumer website. Someone's looking at a flight and like, oh, click over to the careers page, see what's happening over there. And so they've realized that many of their, many of their candidates are also customers or potential customers. So they started actually providing assessment results, a limited version of the assessment results that any candidate that applies for a job there, they take this assessment, they give them a version of it that shows their strengths and what they're good at. They pass that mm -hmm. back to those candidates. So even if they say, no, no, thank you, they're still getting something of value back and they feel like they're, they're appreciated. They feel like their time was well spent because, Hey, I didn't get the job, but they look at this really interesting thing. Who else does that? And so yeah. tie all those things together. You're talking about, this is not no longer, just a, well, I can do this thing or I can do that thing. No, increasingly they're, especially for consumer facing brands, there's some, some things that bring that together to say, if you're not doing this again, you're going to kind of stand out for the wrong kind of reasons. Yeah. I, gosh, again, I'm smiling because we talk about the ideal future state of this process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would love personally for a development plan to be part of your onboarding process. Hey, you went through all these interviews, all this time and effort and energy, had these assessments. Welcome. You know, here's how we see you progressing based on what we've heard from you and what we have to offer within our organization. Of course, the reality is going to be different, but at least it is a plan. And that would be wonderful. Similarly, to your point, if I'm a candidate and I don't get the job, or I choose to opt out at some point in the process, if I have some asset to say, hey, God, that was, I learned something. I learned something about myself. I learned something that I did not want to do, but I also learned how I'm viewed and I can maybe nudge some things, lean into other things. You know, so that's, you know, a beautiful ideal to work towards. But I, increasingly, it's not a nice to have. It is an essential to maintain or enhance a brand like, like Delta. I would be more apt to fly Delta if, you know, that was my experience during the process. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. The, and the thing about time too, you know, we talk, we can talk about assessments and having a perfect process, but if it takes too long, then, you know, high value candidates with other alternatives are going to bail. And my question then you know, becomes, and I can see the slide that you have here. Can you talk about once an offer is extended, you know, what, what happens from a candidate perspective, what they, what yes. they do or not do? For sure. Yes. Feel free to show that one up there for everybody, because this is one of the stats that really stunned me in the data. So we see that when we ask workers, if you accept an offer, 
how long are you going to be open to other conversations, other job conversations? Because I feel very old fashioned when I say, when I accept an offer in my, in my own career, I'm committed. But we've seen the data that just one out of three people say, when I accept that offer, I'm good. I'm set. I'm done. I'm committed, at least for the foreseeable future. The other two out of three candidates say anywhere from a few weeks, keeping the options open, just don't want to be you know, too committed, all the way to never. I'm always going to be open. It doesn't matter if it's next week, if it's next month. I'm always going to keep my options open. And so there's all these kind of factors that play into this. And what gets me is part of this is the changing, what's changing and terms of what's socially acceptable uh, when you make a commitment, when you're making a decision, things like that. Overall, the data we have on ghosting, there's different layers to it, obviously, right? The one where, where Al applies and we have a conversation and then I try to call him back next week and I can't get you on the phone, right? That's one, that's one version of it. It's an entirely different thing where we go down, we have two or three interviews, we pick you and you accept the offer and you don't show up there. That's the most egregious form of ghosting in my, in my opinion. And what we see in the data is someone who is younger is much more likely than someone who has more years of experience in the workplace to do that. And what concerns me most isn't that, oh, it's a, you know, the, the young people are doing that, you know, it's something to watch out for, just, just hire someone who's more experienced. No, those people who are younger have much fewer years of experience in the workplace. So they've only got five years professional experience, potentially if they graduated at 20 and they're working at 25, that'd be really fast, right? They were able to do it that quickly those people have much less experience in the workplace and they're already doing it more often than everybody else. So I'm concerned that this is going to become a more prevalent thing, not less prevalent, regardless of how tight the market gets. It's just a different, different set of social expectations and social what's socially acceptable. And so that concerns me a little bit to see those things on the rise and as prevalent as they are. Well, I'm going to, there's a question right here that's on, on your screen, and I want to wrap this up into two broader questions as we uh, you know, approach the, the bottom of the hour here. Uh, the questions, and we've been touching on it, are, are these, is what would be your coaching to individuals, you know, particularly younger people, as you just mentioned, you know, to manage themselves and their relationship with prospective employers, you know, through the recruiting process. And on the other side, what would be your coaching to employers, uh, not only recruiters, but hiring managers and others in the hiring process? Granted, they're big questions, but you know there needs to be a, a match there. It needs to be a healthy relationship. And oftentimes it's not. And part of that, in my view anyway, is uh, disalignment. Uh, I, a, a colleague years ago called it expectation violation. And I was uh, like, yeah, that's a powerful couple words that are brought you know, together. So with that as the framing, advice to candidates and, and employers so there is no or limited expectation violation. Oh, goodness. I'll, I'm going to write that one down because I like the 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 connotations of that because it's it's very clear, right? It feels like ghost is like, oh, it's just that thing. Expectation violation feels a little more serious because it really is, right? At least one of us has not made very clear what our expectations are in this process. And it hurts to be on the other end of that. So from a, if I was coaching someone, it would be close the loop every time, right? Professionalism, all those things. When jobs are plentiful, it feels like it's disposable. I can just not respond and I'm good to go. And even if it's just, hey, I took this other job, any sort of close the loop is, is beneficial and it's how you'd want to be treated. It's how you'd want someone to circle back with you and let you know if that opportunity is off the table, you'd want them to tell you that. 
So we see in the data that candidates want updates as frequently as possible when it comes to their status of their application. They want to know right away if possible. And if not, at least once a week, keep me in the loop on what's happening. So they want that sort of immediacy and that update. And yet sometimes they're not providing that. On the employer side, there's a couple things. Number one, when that offer acceptance comes in, save the cheering. Right? Don't ring the bell yet for whatever other thing you do to celebrate. Hold off. What is your plan? What is your strategy for making sure that person shows up on day one, not just physically, but mentally prepared to jump in to what your company is all about, what they want to do. We asked in, in, the, in the research, when you start a new job, what's most important to you? I really want to get that. And no surprise, the first thing that candidate said is, I just want to get up to date, up to, up to speed on the responsibilities, the tasks. I just want to make sure I'm ready to do the job you hired me to for. That's a good sign. Okay, I'm, I'm thankful for that. But right behind that is, I want to get connected to my manager. I want to feel like we have a real relationship because in the data we have, if someone doesn't feel supported by the direct manager, they're twice as likely to leave, not some vague point far in the future, but in the next 30 days. So if they don't feel supported by that manager, that is critical, critical, big red flag. So they want to be connected to that manager. Next up, they want to be connected to the peers, their teammates, who they're working with. For some age groups in the workplace, relationships are in their top two things that make them excited about coming to work every day. So the relationships piece is big. And then right after that was feeling like I'm connected to the culture, the values, the bigger mission that we're doing here. So I'm not just this little, you know, I'm not just an account at three or a you know, deputy admin assistant, but here's the mission of the company and here's how I fit into that bigger picture and whatever we're trying to do. And again, for some of those things, we can help lay out a plan. We can have a strategy for that. But Al, it comes down to that manager stepping in and really making that work, making that happen. Because if they fall down on this, they deprioritize this, they say, I'll get to that at some point, right? They're the ones who are going to lose that person pretty quickly. And we're going to start all over again, trying to find someone else to come in and do that. Yeah, I thank you for emphasizing that point. And implicit in there is that the manager has the skills and wherewithal to do it. And many frankly don't. They haven't had the experience. They haven't had the coaching. They haven't had the training. That muscle hasn't been exercised. And I say that compassionately and not critically. Yeah. It's like at what point in your life, whether it be in your educational experience or professional experience, have you been coached on how to onboard someone, stay connected, you know, facilitate that process? So your thoughts there on, on what can be done to solve for that? Oh, goodness. Let's stop picking leaders based on how long they've been at the organization. We, we've run out of places to promote you. So now you get to be a people manager. We're going to take you out of a job that you've obviously been doing pretty well for a while. If you're still here, right? We're going to take you out of that job and put you in a job where you're not doing that anymore. And you're going to manage people with an entirely different skill set who are doing that job you used to be good at. That's a really tough place to be. And it sounds weird to put it that way, but that right now, as you and I are talking, someone is making that decision right now. And we have to stop that. We've got to start picking leaders based on their their ability to lead. I don't know. That sounds kind of silly to say it out loud, but we've got to pick them based on, do they have the right uh, temperament? Do they have the right abilities? Do they have the right, you know, golly, I just want to say a hundred things right now. I'll tell you really quick, tell you really quick that I had a chance recently, I'm much, but published an episode pretty soon on the podcast where I interviewed the head of leadership selection at the Mayo Clinic. Okay. So this is, coming straight from someone who does this every day. This is 100% of her job. And she said, she told me that they pick leaders. They ask a ton of questions. They do a lot of assessments. They do all these kinds of things to try to pick someone who's going to be a leader because they've realized that the cost of a bad leader means they're going to lose all these incredible performers that they brought onto their team there. 
if we bring in a good leader, it's not just that those people don't leave. Whew, goodness, they, st they stick around. But they also perform at a higher level because that leader is an amplifier of the performance of everyone that they serve. Not just everyone that they direct or command, but everyone that they actually serve. That leads to better impact across the organization for their patients in that sense. And for anybody out there, right? If it doesn't matter what industry you're in, that same thing is true. A great leader is going to amplify anything that their reports are doing because they're they're making them better. They're giving them a safe space. They're doing all those things that lead to, that lead to right more engagement. At the end of the day, that might be the thing we wake up in the morning saying, "I want to I'm going to shoot for this." But if we are treating them well, we're giving them the sort of support, they're going to be excited and engaged and ready to perform at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I and I will just add the willingness to take on a leadership role as well. You know, you can have the skills, but you know, if you're in, excited about it, you're going to just obviously be better. So as we start to wrap up, um, I'm going to sneak in this one question. So just quick points on uh, for young people specifically um, who are candidates or people in mm -hmm. career track, anybody, you know, what would be your one or two things that uh, coaching that you would give, you know, candidates, particularly here we are in mid 2022. Uh, and there's, you know, there's heightened risk in the uh, marketplace, you know, given inflation and a variety of other, you know, factors. So what would be your coaching to make sure that you represent yourself well in the process? You never know. You think, you know, but you never know when those relationships are going to come back around again. The times that I have, other than the very first time I applied for a job, every other time came from a relationship, came from a conversation that it wasn't a, oh, you're a shoe in, but that at least got the conversation started. And the professional relationship that you build for yourself, you cannot, I cannot overstate how important that is, right? Mm -hmm. And again, it's not just about having a name or a personal brand or whatever you want to call it, right? Having, when someone says, hey, you know, you know that Al guy, Al Addison, he is a great guy. And when he says something, he means it, he's going to do it. Right. There is there that is worth any any number of that's right untold numbers of dollars for someone to have a reputation like that. And so for all it's very easy to feel like, oh well, there's there's a hundred other jobs. I just get another one of those, right? The, this the headline said there's more jobs than people. Yeah. Yes, but that may not always be the case. And even if it is always the case, you don't want that reputation of being the person that stands people up, that doesn't do what they'll say they'll do, that said yes and then didn't then backed out. That's not that's not something that you can easily repair. Yeah, no, agreed. Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for doing what you do. Uh, how can people learn more about you and what you're doing there at Lighthouse? So the easiest way is lhra.io for Lighthouse Research and Advisory. You can Google me, hit me up on LinkedIn. That's where I spend most of my time. I run a lot of events and everything else there. Spend a lot of my professional life online in that space. And so happy to connect with anybody or you're welcome to follow me to see what kind of new research we're doing. We've got a lot of new studies coming up very soon on learning developments on the frontline workforce and what they need from employers, right? all kinds of good stuff. And it's so much fun for me to be able to kind of turn the rocks over, see what's underneath and then share that back with all of you in the community so you can make the next best decision to do your job better. So thank you all for giving me a chance to, to share. And thank you to Al for giving me a chance to, to join you for this conversation. Of course. It's been fantastic. So, hey, you be well and uh, hope to see you in person for too long. All right. Hey, that'd be tremendous. Absolutely. All right, Ben, you be well. Thank you. And Thank thanks you. for joining us today.